This is Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. Your host, Carl Valeri, has over a decade of experience counseling pilots. Aviation Careers Podcast will help you navigate towards your aviation career goal. Here is your host, Carl Valeri. Welcome to the Inspirational, Informational, and Transparent Aviation Careers Podcast. Today, we discuss seaplane pilot careers with Alaska pilot Ken Marshall. But before we begin, we just have a few announcements here. Don't forget, you can go to aviationcareerspodcast.com and check out all the different things we have, such as the Scholarships Guide, Career Coaching, and other online courses. We're starting to put more out there. On our YouTube channel, we just put up a free video about your pilot uh, resume in five simple steps. That actually, at the end of that video, there's uh, actually a free gift. So you want to go watch it till the end. And uh, the free gift is actually the ability to sign on to the online course for free. We're kind of doing that right now because of what's been going on in the industry. And if you need some help with your resume after you watch that video and you put together your resume, we're willing to help you out there uh, with our career coaching. You can actually go to the courses page and find out more. Also, if you want to check out the YouTube channel, click on YouTube on the website, aviationcareerspodcast.com, or just look up Aviation Careers Podcast on YouTube. It's that simple. Don't forget the scholarships guide is available. We have updates. Uh, let's see. The newest update is 64 new scholarships uh, with six updates and a new category like we talked about, the scholarships for adults. Really inexpensive. It's $10 for one-year access. We update it every month. I know I get a lot of questions as to are there any other formats. We do have it on the uh, Apple Bookstore and also on Amazon. The only thing is that uh, because of certain restrictions with the, both of those stores, they don't let us do the updates consistently. So uh, what we do is if you purchase it on the Apple Bookstore or if you purchase it in Amazon, you send us your electronic receipt and we'll give you uh, access to the online guide uh, for a year. The easiest way to do it though, honestly, is just go buy the online guide. Also, our latest video on YouTube is uh, your FA medical in the COVID-19 crisis. And we talked to an aviation attorney. Check out that video. Even though it's it's geared more towards general aviation, there's a lot of uh, similarities in the professional world. Plus, those of you that are flying uh, for hire for somebody Part 91, this will apply to you much of what he has to say. And we talk a little bit about uh, aviation careers, et cetera, but it's more geared towards the general aviation. We're also putting up a video about once a week uh, to discuss uh, different topics as far as aviation and careers are concerned. Well, on with the show, we have with us uh, somebody who's been on before, and uh, it's Ken Marshall. He actually is a seaplane pilot and has had a really interesting career in Alaska. Hey, Ken, welcome to the podcast. Hey, good morning, Carl. Nice to be here. Good sunny day. Hopefully it's that way. It's always sunny where you live, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Florida. Yeah. Well, yesterday was one of the few days. We get three days out of the year. There's no sun. I mean, that's, uh, <laughs> we, we can't complain. They used to give away the newspaper if the sun didn't come out. It's pretty funny how that works. But Ken, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself before we start talking seaplane careers. You're actually an airline pilot right now. Uh, yeah, I'm actually uh, on the regionals. Uh, flying, uh, which is getting uh, shorter by the day, seems like. Next month uh, is, is is pretty slim pickings as far as uh, some of the uh, the routes and so forth. It's just just the nature of the beast uh, right now, what's going yeah, on with the, with the COVID. I've been making COVID. a joke of been calling it COVID because we're uh, avoiding everybody and uh, avoiding each other and trying to distance and so forth. So it, it's been interesting. 
but I do have a job. I'm very thankful to have a job right now. So, and we're recording this on the April twenty seventh, two thousand twenty. So people understand. I mean, you may be listening to this a year from now and realize, oh, yeah. oh yeah. you know, this is all this is all over. And and maybe we came up, uh, who knows, with a vaccine. I hope. I sure hope that happens <laughs> sometime great. sometime in the near future. But we did do another show about uh, what you know your background and also uh, your experiences as an airline pilot. And so go check that one out. But today, I, you know, something I didn't realize about you was that you were a seaplane pilot, and uh, mm-hmm. that was. That's something that I think is really cool as far as getting uh, your rating recreationally. But, you know, there are careers uh, in the seaplane world. So tell us a little bit about why, and I know you're pretty passionate about it. So before we get into (laughs) all the nitty gritty, you know, what's so so great about being a seaplane pilot? I know you're passionate about it. Oh, well, I mean. What's not like air, water, air, I mean, airplanes, you're landed on water instead of land. I mean, you're not restricted to a piece of pavement and a white line. It's, uh, <laughs> I can't think of a thing, uh, that, that, that wouldn't be good about it. You're floating around on an airplane. I mean, it's like flying a pontoon or, uh, of course, if you're <laughs> on amphibs, which I did a little bit of that, that's like, you know, uh, landing on the, on terra firma is like landing a shopping cart. So that's, that's a barrel of fun too. So what you're saying is you can do just about anything on the water or more, you know, you can jump off your, you get yeah. on your floats and go, go fishing. You can, I've actually done it. I've uh, caught fish. Uh, when I trained in Alaska, one of my, uh, I guess one of my mentors up there, we would stop, we'd drop a, a shrimp pot off and we would go fly and do some training, <laughs> come back. And, you know, after the day was done, we'd kind of stop off where we dropped it and we'd pull it up from the bottom. We'd have all kinds of little live shrimp in there and you just pull them up on the float and use the strut kind of to run the rope over and help you leverage it up. And you just peel and eat some some nice uh, sushi right there. It was, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> where else are you going to do that? You, know? you can't you do that. to the beach and have a shrimp boil. Yeah. Chicago does. I mean, there, there's not a, a pothole big enough to go shrimping. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, you have me sold on, as far as the seaplanes and flying floats, but uh, there's a lot to it. It's a lot of folks thinking to just go out and get their seaplane rating and gosh, jump into a job. But yeah. I think it's important to understand there. Um, if you're thinking about it as a career, not more so than the hobbyist who wants to just get their rating, there's a few things that you have as far as advice. So we're going to drill into that because you have a lot of really good information. So first, let's start off with um, the training. I know there's all these courses you can become a seaplane pilot in, in a couple of days, that type of thing. So what do you suggest for the person that's looking at it from a career standpoint as far as training? Uh, Well, okay. Yeah. From a career standpoint, I mean, one of the best things I can say before you even try to look for a seaplane school or something, uh, the best advice, and I'm primarily a tailwheel guy anyway, that's what, uh, and this is not from a bias because I love tailwheel airplanes. This is just the simple fact that all of that learning that you learn with a tailwheel endorsement will transfer over to float flying. doesn't mean that if you've never flown a tailwheel, that you're a tricycle person, that you can't learn floats. That's not it at all. But if you could get a tailwheel endorsement, it will greatly help you uh, transition into floats because of the feel and um, just the, the, the nature of float flying and being able to sensitively uh, understand the pitch on the takeoff and the landing. Uh, that's, you know, it, it, tailwheel endorsement will help you a lot. So that's one way to kind of start off. If you've got that, just kind of put your foot in the water there, even if it's uh, just a couple hours. I mean, there's no reason not to get an endorsement once you, once you get a couple hours under your belt in a tailwheel. 
and I'll go ahead and finish. It shouldn't be that big a deal. That's, that's what I did primarily as an instructor, uh, was working with, uh, you know, folks in tail wheels and, and instruments. So, so that's a good transition into the whole flying and floats is, is, oh from yeah. The tailwheel. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very similar, uh, very, very similar. And then how you kind of learn to, uh, bring the tail up and maintain the tail, uh, wheel landings versus, uh, you know, three point landings or full stall, depending on who you talk with. Uh, yeah. Landing. One of the more difficult things to, uh, to learn initially in a float is to do a glassy water landing. And that's very, very similar to doing a, a wheel landing or putting the main gear on gently and leaving the tail up. So you can why, see why is that? Uh, the glassy water. Why is yeah. that so difficult? Well, you, it's, it's something very similar to uh, a whiteout condition if you're landing on a glacier, too. You know, it, it, a lot of pilots can lose their depth perception. Uh, so you kind of try to pick a peripheral on the side. If you can find a, a point to the, your left or your right, you know, on a shoreline, you want to kind of pick that. But it's really about patience. It's really about setting up a good distance back and really getting that approach to a, to about a hundred, if you could get it down to a hundred foot a minute, uh, descent rate. And then just the, the, the floats will just kiss down just like a golf ball has all those little dimples on it. You really want to see some texture on water because the floats will actually have some, uh, some friction. Um, you know, there's some hydrodynamic, uh, friction there. And if there, if there are no little dimples in there, I don't you remember when the swimmers, uh, years ago got little bit of disqualification because of the shark oh, skin yeah. suits in the Olympics yeah, yeah, yeah. because they were kind of creating those little bubbles and ripples in the water. And it was like unfair advantage. Well, I'll take any advantage I can get in an airplane. So <laughs> I want those ripples. Uh, it, so when you don't have them there, there's, so there's a couple of factors there. There's a depth perception issue. There's uh, you know, something shining off the water, no ripples, you know, you get weird glares, you get weird reflections and, and then you have this extra friction that you don't expect. So, so you need to, uh, try to gently touch down and, and it, it takes quite a good ways to set up, uh, for that. You know, you want to get real nice and stable. It's, it's similar to a stabilized approach, but much more patient. <laughs> much so more how patient. do you learn all this? I mean, you, you're, I guess that goes, I must be some books out there you can reference and yeah, uh, well, on these type of concepts. There, there are, there are a lot of different books. I mean, the FAA has a pretty decent, uh, handbook. I think it, it's in the show notes. Um, uh, it's 8083-23. You can get that, download that online and that'll give you a, an overview. Most seaplane courses or places that you would go to train will offer that in a link. Um, the FAA, obviously you can just go on there and read about it if you'd want. There's Edo puts out some stuff, some, uh, Whip Air, there's a lot of information out there that you can get and you'll see a lot of redundancy in it. And that's good uh, because the more you read something, the more it sticks, obviously. So, so going back to how we train, you know, obviously looking up the, the guide there, as far as the FA handbook, you can mm -hmm. purchase it too. And some people like the actual printed copy and I get it. You know, I'm I, one of I those. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah I'm, I'm the same. Behind me too. <laughs> I see all and, yours in your, in your I know. and, and for those here. that, uh, yeah, <laughs> we, uh, my, my library here of all these aviation books and I love reading aviation. Uh, and it's really something that is important to when we're doing our training is get the actually FAA's book and also get as many as we can. So, I have actually about five books on seaplane uh, flying, even though I don't have my seaplane license. Oh yeah, yeah, it's a it's a ball. I mean, even any of the books that you can get, you know, th there's there's a lot of information about uh, 
pilots in Alaska, uh, Kenmore Air, the I, I forget what it's called, something the iconic beaver or I've got it. I've got it on my bookshelf, but I, I don't remember the title. You know, there's all kinds of neat stuff out there. Uh, just and even even if you just read somebody's memoirs, you're going to pick up some little tips. Uh, if you read between the lines or if you sometimes they'll actually give it away straight up in their in their uh, books or stories. So, you know, I'm always trying to pick and glean all these little tricks and tips and just store it away. You never know when you need it. So while you're training, one of the important things as far as working with your instructor, I think, is uh, especially from someone who's new to the seaplane pilot world is maybe trying to be really open minded, I guess, about this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Go in there with a with a different view. I mean, you know, don't go in there real cocky, just 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 like any other thing uh, that you're doing in life. Go in there with with an open mind. Be humble and listen, because there are some things that are going to be different. I mean, you you can uh, you can do some things that that can get you hurt, can get some other folks hurt, can flip the airplane uh, that are not exactly the same as on land. You know, so listen to what's going on. I, you know, I don't want to scare anybody. There, there's always this fear about tailwheel even, you know, and people are almost apprehensive to do it. And I, I really don't want that for water landings at all. I don't want that for tailwheel endorsements. It's, it's a matter of you've got a set of parameters and you work within those parameters. So listen to those and, and, and adhere to those and try not to push that envelope beyond that. Uh, it's there for a margin of safety and your instructor is going to teach you all that and help you and help you read the water. You know, you've got to stay open-minded. You're going to make mistakes, give yourself the grace to, to mess up from time to time. And, you know, your instructor's considering that he's going to, he or she's going to consider how far you can make a mistake for a learning process, you know, and how close it, you know, do you stop the person or do you allow them to make that mistake? Is it, is it, can they make that mistake safely without causing harm or injury? so that they can learn from it or should I stop them? And, you know, so trust your instructor. They're, they're there for you. They, they want you to succeed. Uh, all your examiners really want you to succeed. Uh, DPEs especially, you know, that they, they want to, to see you uh, do well. So before we get started training, we need to consider a few things uh, like we talked about, but also finding a school. Uh, we have to find a school and also we have to pay for this. <laughs> yeah, finding a school and paying for it. I, anything that you do in aviation, if at all possible, try to save up the money before you go do it. Now, we're just talking about a simple endorsement or an add-on rating here, whether it's commercial or not. Um, you know, we're kind of leaning more towards the commercial side of it because it's about careers. But try to have that money beforehand, you know, uh, loading up a credit card or, or whatever. Uh, if you need to, yeah, do it, but you got to be serious about it. Make sure you pay it off. Don't, just don't load up debt and then not use it. I'm a real proponent for having the cash and hopefully being able to, to pull it off. There's nothing worse than starting training and then having to stop because you ran out of funds. That really costs more money in the long run. So pick a good time that you have that you can take and focus uh, where you're free of distractions. Find a school that's near you. There are a lot of different schools. You know, I don't know too many uh, too many of the schools that are in California, but California has quite a few. I went to Seattle area up in the north, pack north, because I knew I wanted to fly in Alaska. I already had a line on a job up there, so I chose that. They actually gave me a choice whether to go to Florida or whether to go to the pack north, and I just chose to uh, go to the north because the weather was going to be similar, the terrain 
close to similar, maybe not quite as tall and on the coastal areas, but you know, there are many schools. I've got a few in the notes there that I wrote. Uh, Jack Brown's down in, in Florida is really close to where you are. Uh, that's very, I've flown with some of their instructors in Alaska and, uh, just great people overall, very reputable stuff, uh, coming out of there, people and teaching. Uh, I know there are a lot of recreational guys that go there for sure, but there are plenty of commercial tickets given out of there. I went to Kenmore air, uh, which is pretty iconic for beavers. Cause that was my dream to, to fly beavers. That's why I, I actually backed into this career. You know, most guys fly the airlines. They have this dream to to fly float planes maybe one day commercially. They've got tons of experience. And then they go get their float rating. And when they retire, their wives say, okay, I'll let you go for summer. I'm tired of you hanging around the house too much anyway, you know. So they go up and they'll, they'll get a gig for the for the season. I, that's how I started. And, and I'm middle if I'm going to live to be a hundred, I guess I'm middle-aged now. So <laughs> I just turned 50 back in November. So I started. Happy when I, birthday. Yeah. Well, thanks. Uh, but yeah, you, you know, your spouse, make sure you, if you're, your spouse is going to go with you, try to find a school that maybe has some stuff around it uh, that your spouse can go do. Uh, that's, that's fun, whether it's beach or shopping or some sort of entertainment or just sightseeing, you know, so that's one of the best things that I can say about, you know, make, make it fun for you both for sure. So, yeah, very important, you know, and that the whole family gets involved, especially if you're going to do this as a career and, yeah. you know, the, going back to the paying for it, I, I love how you talked about trying not to get too far in debt. And the, probably the only thing I believe in getting in debt for is something you can use as a career, you know, training college, that kind of thing. But yeah. for the most part, if you can do it in cash, it's terrific. One way to do that, obviously there's a company that has been in our scholarships guide for a long time and that's whip air. And the people at whip air have been so wonderful to us at, at aviation curves podcast. And also at Stuck Mike Avcast for a helping sponsor, uh, quite a few things that we've done at some of the, the like the Seaplane of Palooza that we've done oh, in yeah. Tavares and that type of thing. Uh, and they have a scholarship that's out there. And I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Ken, you actually knew, know something about that. Did you actually get a scholarship? I, well, how in the world did you find out? I applied for one. I actually wrote a paragraph or, or a couple paragraphs. Carl, man, you're amazing. I don't know how in the world you figured that out. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I I did not get a scholarship, uh, but I did, uh, and and it was Whip Air that I that I sent my uh, entry into, <laughs> and I just kind of told him, you know, because I'm from Kentucky, it's not quite the float plane capital of the world. Uh, we have some nice waterways, but <laughs> golly, I, the only float plane pilot I know in Kentucky is a guy I trained, you know. So there there are some others. I'm not saying that uh, exclusively. I just don't know them. Yeah, I love Whips. Uh, great floats, great company. Been there for years. Uh, you know, float plane in general is has decreased. You know, it's it's kind of an expensive endeavor. But gosh, Minnesota, which is where my wife is from, oh gosh, it's just great. It's a great place to fish, recreate, and everything. And if you if you're an aviator, my goodness. And so they have always retained that that funness. Uh, that's the one thing I like about Whip Whip Air. They uh, they're, they're it's a fun company. Uh, great company, very practical, and they listen. That's what's so cool about them. They really listen to their uh, to their customers and you know general aviation overall. So, yeah, one of the things that's really important, I think, is uh, as far as 
aviating in general and in this career, and I think you just pointed it out, you got to have fun. You really do. And I, and I know we talked to be. about that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I know it's a career and I get it. You know, we're not doing this quite, a, quite as a hobby, but in general and for a career, it's a good idea to really do something you enjoy. And by doing something you enjoy, it's picking also not just the time and place like we talked about with our family. It's also picking the type of aircraft. And you kind of alluded to that, I think, when you talked about the mall and, uh, and some of the other and the beavers and stuff like that, as far as the type of aircraft. So let's discuss that somewhat as far. And that goes into both the cost category and the fun category. Oh, huge. Yeah. Where, yeah. where do we, how do we balance that? And, and is there that big of a difference between going in a cub as opposed to uh, doing it in a mall or a beaver? Uh, well, yeah, you know, you're, it's kind of trying to, uh, you know, I'm in my mind, I'm thinking as we're talking that, that I'm trying to address someone who doesn't have a seaplane rating, but, uh, let's, let's go back to our initial training and hopefully you've had a variety of, of different airplanes, uh, that you've been able to fly from your private through your commercial. I'm a huge proponent of underpowered aircraft. Uh, that's just, that's just me personally. Uh, I wish we'd go back if everybody could fit in a 150 or, a, you know, some sort of a, a of a very low horsepower, uh, high wing aircraft. I mean, I'm 5'10 and I'm about 160 pounds and, you know, I, it, it can be uncomfortable in a 150 after a, a couple hours. And I've flown many hours in them. I, I used to take one back in the, the hills of Kentucky just because I wanted to, uh, to get in those low power, high density altitude situations and my cub that I flew. So, um, I'm a big proponent of taking cubs, whether it's a J three or a super cub. Uh, I love a 172 on floats. Uh, there, there's a gentleman that I did some more advanced training with that Kenmore was unable to do, uh, because they were limited in the, the two lakes that they could teach on there in, a. uh, a metropolitan environment. So I, I sought out a gentleman, uh, which I, is in the show notes, it's seaplane scenics and, uh, James Young's his name. I think I put Kirkland in the show notes, but it's really Renton, I think is where he's at. It's all, it's all generally the same area, the Seattle area. But, um, man, I had a ball. He has a 172 on floats and we just went out, we did some mooring work. We did some beaching, we did some current work and, uh, it was, I loved it. Uh, that was the only time I've been able to fly 172 on floats. And this was not an IO360. I think he had a 320 in that. I, I can't remember exactly. It wasn't the 180 horse. It was a 140 or 161. I can't remember which. But uh, yeah, the, you can pay more money. You can train in a 185 or 182, whatever you want to call it or you can do a beaver i mean a beaver is going to be like 600 bucks an hour or something <laughs> it's, it's that's a bit expensive yeah i mean you're gonna have to be able to purchase one in order to rent one for a little bit i mean you know that's that's typically what somebody would pay to uh you know to train in a beaver so um it, it's out of reach for most people who are going to try to do a career in that so uh you could get an hour or two if you wanted to do that just to get some experience but uh golly that's that's but for the most pricey. part it's 172s and uh, also Cubs on floats. That type of thing is usually sure. what we're seeing. Yeah. So from with that said, for somebody who's in the having the idea of going forward as a career pilot, so the best thing to do is get the rating, um, get it as quickly as possible with the least amount of dollars. So maybe the beaver's out. Uh, if you're a little heavier like me, I actually um, 
I'd have to go in the mall. Uh, I can't do it in the cub, yeah, uh, unfortunately. Yeah. And so that's just you know the, the way it is, and uh, that's kind of been throughout my career. So there's other people like me who are in that that weight range where uh, we wind up spending a little more because of that. Um, but the one thing that I get this question all the time as far as the seaplane, and I know this is going <laughs> to controversial topic. There is there's like the sea rays and you know the amphibious and the hull boats and then there's the ones that are on floats mm-hmm. for someone who's looking at this strictly as a career do you have a suggestion as to which one would be better uh before they go out and and get a job i'm assuming and and i don't know i'm assuming that most of them are on floats not the type of they're not the hull boats like you see uh, yeah. the amphibious i you know uh i you know honestly i don't know anybody that commercially operates a flying boat uh that i can think of off the top of my head now maybe there are some that are on their the you know tickets for the 135 operations or something but not not to my knowledge um and i'm not museums are about the only ones i know of yeah that's about it yeah there's there's some uh you know what is it the the canadian air tankers but they're kind of amphib flying boats so that's the only thing that i know commercially that's out there doing work like that. So, and, and the vast majority of, uh, float plane gigs that you're going to do are going to be on straight floats. Uh, there, there are quite a few, uh, you know, amphib operations, you know, they're mostly 208s on amphibs, uh, that are doing airports and water landings, you know, New York, Boston. Um, there's a pretty good size outfit there in, uh, Florida, that flies in and they fly in and out of the Caribbean and so forth. Uh, now those are all amphib, uh, airplanes, you know, they, they, they can do both. I, I've flown both. When I lived in Naples, Florida, uh, I was flying amphibs back and forth to the keys to Boca and, and so forth. Uh, but, uh, most of my, most of my, all of my beaver flying has been straight floats. So it's probably best to do uh, floats and uh, and just so, to get used to it, I guess, as far as doing it for sure. a living primarily. So just uh, and that all has to do with the type and air- aircraft that are out there commercially, uh, not as far as what's better, what's worse, that kind of thing. So because no, no. that's always been a debate with people. Uh, the other debate we hear a lot, and this is kind of interesting, is um, how about my multi-engine seaplane rating? Do I need to get that? Oh uh, gosh! Uh, if you want to get it, you can get it. It's a it's a very. I don't have mine. I'm I'm single engine C. That doesn't mean that you can't get yours. It's just not useful here. We don't have multi engine seaplanes for the most part. It's all going to be single engine stuff. Um, you know, even the otters they'll have turbine otters. Uh, so we really don't do twin otters on floats that much. I, you know, I know a couple of beautiful beach 18s up in Duluth that are on floats, uh, with the big radials on them and that they're absolutely gorgeous. They don't, they just don't fly that often. You know, uh, it's not a full-time gig. I would get my single, my advice is to get your single seaplane commercial, then find an outfit. Cause most outfits, if they're flying twins, uh, they're going to have some singles there too. So, you know, try to get a job for that outfit, then, then move into their twins and, and do it that way. It's a little pricier, obviously, you know, you're getting up there in that beaver range of, uh, probably 600 bucks an hour. Cause, uh, you can basically take what you'd normally pay for a multi-engine rating and almost double it when you're looking at seaplane, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's an expensive endeavor because there's, there are a lot of, uh, extra costs and so forth and extra risk involved, but 
there, there just aren't that many jobs out there to get for multi-engine. It's all single engine stuff. So, so from efficiency standpoint, it's, it's kind of like with the flight instructor, you want to get the CFI first and start instructing. Absolutely. Not quite as many multi-engine uh, instructor jobs out there. Sure. So. Sure. So that, there, yeah. that makes sense. How about as far as let's go a little bit more into the career uh, of actual flying and what okay. people can expect. I guess the biggest thing is before we even talk about what it's like to fly up in Alaska and stuff like that, and then we'll talk a little bit about other places. I think one of the more important things that we need to talk about is pay uh, before okay. we get into that. So, sure. um, what a you know what can can someone first can can you make a living doing this? Sure, absolutely, you could. Uh, it's, it's not going to be on your, uh, level of your major carriers, obviously, you know, um, uh, a good friend of mine, when I went to the airlines, he's like, Oh, you mean you're not going to be a knuckle dragon float plane pilot anymore? <laughs> you know, like we haven't evolved <laughs> or something. I thought it was hilarious. Uh, he was also <laughs> the guy that I went shrimping with in Alaska. So, uh, they fly in Papua New Guinea. Uh, now he and his wife, they, uh, they are full time. Uh, they're missionary pilots there. So they're doing humanitarian work in a whole nother country. Uh, so there's that aspect too. I don't want to neglect that at all, but yeah, you can make a living. Uh, you can, you know, in Alaska, I flew for a day rate. Uh, you got paid X amount a day, depending on your experience. As I became more useful to the company, I was able to, to increase my, my day rate, there are pros and cons with that. I, I flew uh, like crazy when I was there. I was just eating it up. I, I mean, this is like mac and cheese or, you know, barbecue ribs to me. Uh, I volunteered for more flying. Some of the older gentlemen that were there, they would maybe add on some cargo at, at the end of the day for them. And I'd say, hey, are you sure you want to fly that? I'll take that for you. And, you know, this really wonderful uh, Eric Cullis, he's a retired uh regional guy, uh, airline pilot. Uh, he was always giving me his, his last flight of the day. He, you know, he's like, yeah, I'm tired. I'll go home. Cause we were all working a day rate. So it's just whoever was hungry for the flights that could, could do it. So I would, uh, I'd rack up a lot of, a lot of hours doing that. And, and I loved it. So one of the things I guess is concerning, I, I'm thinking about making a living is that you're getting paid by the day is there like this, for lack of a better term, any kind of guarantee as far as how much you get paid? In other words, is there like a salary or anything like that? Or? Well, there are some salary jobs. The job that I had in, uh, we would fly half the year in, in Florida and the, the other half the year we flew people to uh, Isle Royal up in uh, uh, Upper Peninsula of Michigan in Lake Superior. That was a salary job. It just depends on where you go and who you work for. The 208 jobs that I was, uh, I referred to earlier, I was speaking about, those are usually salary jobs. Uh, sometimes they, they have benefits, sometimes they don't. Uh, depends on the company and how big they are, how, how they're set up. Uh, I worked for a smaller company. I got a salary. And, you know, and then when I flew in Alaska, it was a, that's more of a seasonal job. We had 21 pilots for 15 aircraft. And then in the winter, I think they dropped down to like five pilots. Uh, so yeah, November through March, it was just five guys covering it. So those guys, I think the full-time guys, they got, they did get benefits and could sign on for insurance because they were year round employees. Uh, the rest of us worked for day rates and didn't get, uh, benefits. So there's, there's pros and cons to it. Uh, some, sometimes there's an accident, sometimes it's weather 
or whatever. And it doesn't mean an accident at your company. Like uh, the, the season that I spent in Alaska, right in the middle of summer, there was an accident. We shut down for the day or so and we, everybody transferred over to rescue. So the guy that hired me, the, the director of operations at the time, he and I both were down on the dock. Uh, he grabbed me. I just love the guy. Uh, he's a retired Alaskan airlines pilot, still does some sim teaching for them. And, and we were part of the rescue effort, getting people in that uh, were cold and obviously hypothermic. And we just had the base there and the, the docks in Ketchikan to allow the emergency services to you know easily get to people. So we were just the natural uh, place. So that can happen. That can stop your day. You know, these things happen. Uh, could be a weather event just stops your day. You know, you get up in the morning and you're wanting to take people out to a national park. Yeah, it's low weather. You are in class echo right where you are, but then you're class golf outside of that. Well, it's so aggravating when you can see sunshine and you know right up over the mountain there over the hill. It's perfectly okay, but you legally cannot take off right where you are. So you really have to think about that. There, there are a lot of pros and cons to salary versus day rate. So, yeah. So with the day rates, of course, you're only getting paid while you're flying. So that could uh, affect your salary quite a bit. And, it can, uh, yeah. And that's something that's really important to think about. And in general, though, getting the job is really important. Uh, so you may not be able to negotiate too much on that until you get a little more experience, I'm assuming. Oh, as yeah. Far as absolutely. Salary. Yeah. So, yeah. so basically, take what you can get and then work from there. I think work from there. Be humble. Yeah. And listen yeah. and learn. Uh, I am in no way, shape or form a bush pilot. Uh, I, you know, <laughs> I'm not even sure that, that you could say anybody from here on out are ever going to be bush pilots by the standards of what I would go by to, to uh, define one. You know, the guys that we're out there with paper maps at best or no map at all. And just a compass swinging, you know, hanging from the hood of their airplane or holding one on their lap or something, you know, when they weren't required at some point that those are the bush pilots. Golly, the, they, they managed to do a whole lot more with a whole lot less. So, right. That's for sure. But let's go to Alaska now. And now that we talked a little bit about this money and making a living, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, what kind of, before we leave that, about how much money can someone make? Go, let's go from a low to a high. Uh, and then what you think would be in the middle as far as being a seaplane pilot? You know, I, I don't know what you could make because you could be a professional seaplane pilot and be an instructor. Uh, I, you know, I should have probably made a few phone calls before we did this interview and asked because I did not instruct in seaplane except for once I got back. And insurance saw how much time I had in Alaska, uh, you know, how much time I had and, uh, you know, inflows on amphibs and so forth. And then I had, I've, I've only had really one student as far as that's concerned. And it was more of a, and he actually had a seaplane plane rating from Jack Brown's, but he bought one that were, that was an amphibious, uh, carbon cub, uh, which is a really great company out in Yakima, Washington. And, uh, the insurance company wanted a, a flight instructor. So, I charge 60 bucks an hour. That's in Kentucky. That's what I made. So whatever your pay rate is as an instructor, that that's a viable source of income, but it's, it's all about your gumption and your go get them attitude, how much you want to make there. You know, you could go to a flying school and work there, but I'm not sure what they make as far as working for a company. I would say maybe as low as it, it there again, it's your gumption. If you're on a day rate and you're only going to fly two, three days, four days out of the, the week, you know, then you're, you're relegated to the day rate plus that, which you're talking probably 
250 to 350 a day, I would think, starting out. Um, I, I flew six days a week when I was in Alaska. It was it was my dream, you know, and um, I volunteered for even more flying at the end of the days, you know, as long as I was legal to fly some more and uh, the, there was flying available. Some things I didn't qualify for. Your first year, don't expect to go. If you're with a large outfit, don't go up there and think that, well, uh, I'm going to go do anything they want me to do. No, you may not be able to. Uh, there are some places that might be too dangerous for you to go to as a first-year pilot. Uh, but maybe throughout the season, as you gain more experience, as you're well-trusted and uh, they see that you're not out there cowboying it, that, you know, this whole idea that float plane pilots or Alaskan pilots are a bunch of cowboys – you know, there's some great stick and rudder guys up there, but don't confuse that with people who are dangerous or lackadaisical, you know, a, as an airman. So, so on the topic, um, and, and that's very true. I mean, they're really very conservative as far as flying is concerned most of the time that I've seen. Sure. As far as the pilot jobs, um, there's a couple of them out there that, you know, I have experience with. I do a lot of interview preps for Tropic Ocean Airways, mm -hmm. and uh, those folks really love their jobs because now that's more of a traditional corporation where you get all these benefits and a salary, a minimum amount of flying, I should say, kind of like in the airlines where you get quote unquote a salary, you sure. get a minimum guarantee type of thing. Uh, but there's lots of other ones out there. Some of the students that I've worked with have gone on to places uh, like uh, with the outfit out in Tampa uh, with Icon Aircraft. Uh, we have a couple of students have gone over there. Mm -hmm. uh, now our chief uh, instructor is over there uh, and just some really neat different places that you can actually make money as a seaplane pilot. So the jobs are there. Another one, by the way, is, is the Jones brothers, uh, you know, Rob Galloway up there. in Tavares. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, they have some uh, and they've actually given away scholarships in the past. They do not just, they do flight seeing tours and they do instruction. Uh, they do charter work. And there's, there's a lot of opportunities, especially going to the islands, anywhere there's a large body of water uh, that's around, then that's something that you really have to look at as far as a job is concerned, because there are the opportunities. Uh, not going to be an opportunity as much if you're, you're going to be in the middle of Iowa, although there is some seaplane flying out there. It's just a little tougher yeah. to find. That's for, <laughs> it, that's for it sure. Is, it is. Uh, <laughs> you know, and uh, I know Kenmore, if I'm not mistaken, the, they kind of want you to uh, to teach, obviously, first, if you have very little experience. Uh, and then if you do have experience, they have some 208s that they do on wheels with the belly pods for some delivery. And I think that's kind of how they – uh, move you into their program out there in, in, in Washington before you actually fly their beavers or their otters to the San Juans and so forth and, and provide service. And, you know, so back to the original question, which I, I probably got carried away talking too much about, uh, you know, anywhere, I would say anywhere from 25, 30,000, all the way up to, you know, six figures uh, for a, a float plane gig, you know, right from teach from teaching to, to actual uh, passenger service. One of the things that we really should look at is the fact that you can make money as a as an instructor or in any level. It's it's more dependent upon what you have to give because I I have friends that are instructors making more than people that are actually flying because those people are flying and building their hours to get to those larger uh, better gigs as far as flying flow planes. Yeah, yeah. It's like I said, it's it's all about your gumption and and what you're willing to do or what you want to do. I mean, I was so I flew six days a week and volunteered for it in Alaska. It was just such a, I just saw it as an opportunity and experience, and I just I just ate it up. I loved it. Um, 
then I, I came back and I, you know, the season was over and uh, I flew charter. I flew a little beach jet after that uh, here in the lower 48 and down in America is what they call it up in Alaska. <laughs> so you're going back down to America. And <laughs> so I flew charter and then uh, I left that for another beaver job. I found a beaver job and with all the experience I had in Alaska, I got hired for that and I flew in the upper, like I said, upper peninsula area. And, uh, that was a lot of fun. I mean, sometimes the weather on Lake Superior got worse than what I saw in Alaska for the most part. Uh, but there we kind of had a structure. Uh, the, uh, the owner of the company was a, a, a former airline pilot. So, uh, he tried to get a rotation where we had a two day weekend, then a three day weekend, a two day weekend, three. So, you know, you, you worked, uh, five days and then four days and five days and four days kind of deal. And that was just the way it was structured. So, you know, I, I've got a friend that, that flies, uh, that I flew with in Alaska. I think he does a month on and month off kind of rotation. And he flies one of the two eights on caravans out of, uh, you know, the Northeast area out of New York and Boston areas. And so. So one of the great things about flying in quote unquote America down, down in America, <laughs> is the fact that you have so much available to you as far as clothes, stores, et cetera. I think mm -hmm. I hear this often. People ask me is that, Hey, maybe I'll just go and run up to Alaska to go fly. <laughs> I think a lot of people don't realize, you know, what they need to wear. I mean, my, my sure. wife was stationed down in Antarctica and uh, they gave them a huge briefing with the, uh, with the Navy and the air force, as far as what to wear. Sure. We don't get that as civilians. So what kind of, what advice will you have to somebody who's looking at moving towards the Alaska environment uh, to start flying both from a, from a practical personal standpoint and also from a flying standpoint? Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, from a flying standpoint, definitely, uh, you know, you want something that's comfortable. I, I wore a, uh, an inflatable vest all the time. It was a fishing vest that had, you know, it didn't look like a life jacket, to tell you the truth. Uh, one of the, uh, the gentlemen that, uh, that I flew with there, that was a great mentor to me and my wife too, cause she went with me to Alaska. She's a dispatcher. And, uh, so she worked for the company too. And, you know, he had one of these and I bought it too. Mustang makes it. It's just a fishing vest that has pockets on it. looks like you're going fishing instead of, you know, so I thought it was less alarming than, than wearing one of the inflatable life jackets, you know, that that's uninflated, uh, to the passengers. But, uh, that might be something you want to think about as a float plane pilot, finding something that's comfortable for a PFD for you to wear. Uh, we wore them all the time when I flew in, in Florida and Michigan, both, uh, it, sometimes it's very hot when you wear one of the vest types. So, you know, find something that works there. Don't go out and spend the money on that initially till you get the gig or get a gig. If you're going to Alaska, now I, I was in Southeast. So, uh, but for the most part, Alaska is a damp kind of boggy place, even outside of the uh, uh, Southeast area. You're going to need some rain gear, plain and simple. Uh, and, and make sure you have a couple of, a couple of sets because, you know, Gore-Tex is, is great, but it will get waterlogged and, in a really uh, tough environment, you know, so I, I kind of alternated between three rain jackets. Uh, I kept one set of bibs. Uh, you'll get the Alaskan tinnies, which are extra tough. You'll, you, you probably see people if you've never been there, uh, on some of the shows, uh, you know, wearing brown rubber boots, uh, kind of like a, like a fisherman would wear on a boat or something like that. Uh, 
about bunny boots? Well, yeah, if you're going to fly in the winter, you're going to need some of those big Mickey Mouse shoes for sure. <laughs> uh, some of those old flying wild Alaska uh, things, which you, I think you had Ponce on the show and back when uh, Jim Tweedo still ran the company and stuff. Uh, you, th- those are the great things to watch. I mean, I, wool is fantastic. If you're a wool person, uh, it keeps you warm. Uh, even when it does get damp, I would definitely get get some wool, even for the summers wool and rain gear and you know if you don't do wool then definitely uh get you some sort of uh the synthetic version of that i I tend to wear wool i'm a wool guy but uh patagonia uh some of the uh polypropylene that's the that's the word i'm looking for sorry i'm not an outdoor gear salesman so (laughs) i I didn't have all these things on the front of my head but get, get some layers that's the whole key is layers whether it's uh whether it's wool or whatever but just make sure you have layers for warmth that you can shed because it can be cold and rainy in the first of the day. Then all of a sudden the sun burns everything off. And next thing you know, it's, almost, it's 70, 75 degrees. And so you're going to have to shed, you know, and, and live accordingly. And, and you want to be comfortable in the airplane. You don't, uh, you know, you don't, you want to be inhibited and sweating and you don't want to be freezing either. You want to, you know, you don't want to be thinking about your temperature and, and trying to get comfortable. You need to be thinking about flying. So. So that's one of the important things is is dressing properly, of course, but also uh, making sure it's functional and you can move around. And uh, in Alaska, things are are different. Sure. It's uh, not like the lower forty eight, just in general, from a personal standpoint. Um, but as far as jobs, the one nice thing about Alaska, and I've had quite a few people write me. And by the way, for the person that's listening, uh, some people are feeling a little guilty about the fact that they're involved in aviation and their jobs are really not. Uh, being in in any way affected by this. As a matter of fact, they're busier because they're doing the type of flying that's essential. In Alaska, that's most of the flying is essential because that's how they get around is by airplane. And I I tell you what, if you're thinking that, just feel blessed. Don't don't feel guilty. I mean, you're in a great situation there. And just remember that before people were like, you know, I don't want to do this type of job because I want to be flying a nice, big, shiny jet. Now people are kind of jealous of you being able to fly. Uh, So everything has its seasons in life. And that's just, and you're in a position that is helping a lot of people. And this is what flying is truly like up in Alaska. And I'm sure, Ken, you've you've seen that uh, multiple times, I'm sure, even in a week, uh, how important aviation is to the communities in Alaska. That's that's the one thing I miss ab- so much uh, about flying floats, especially in Alaska. It was the mission specific aspect of it. You know, going to uh, there was a there was a hygienist and a dentist and a doctor that I would take to these these Native American communities, and I loved flying them there because I knew that they were there to take care of those people, and it was my job to get them there safely. And uh, uh, this hygienist, sometimes she would go without the dentist and her husband uh, was also a float plane pilot, but he was a medevac pilot. So he didn't always fly floats. And she liked to fly with me because she felt safe. And man, I, I can't tell you, and, and I don't say that braggingly. I, I feel weird saying that openly and hope thinking that people are going to hear this. But uh, that boy, if that doesn't touch your heart and, and, and give you warm feelings or, uh, you know, spur you on to be a safer, more conservative, thoughtful pilot, know your gear, know your equipment, get inside out of these systems, uh, understand the weather, the environment, that's your office space. You know, 
I was able to fly ducks and chickens out to uh, island communities and knowing that, you know, you're flying these baby chickens in so that people can have fresh eggs out in these remote areas, uh, wedding cakes. That was, that was a fun thing. You know, it, it can get a little bumpy and sporty at times there in Alaska. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, you're taking a cake and hope, hopefully not, uh, damaging the icing where they, it's, it's some somewhat legible when you get there. Uh, you know, that, that's, I brought a little puppy dog back one time, uh, it was a look like a little black lab mix dog and had a big halibut hook right through his nose and he had to bring him back to the, mm-hmm. to the vet to have it removed. I mean, those are big old hooks. I mean, you're talking, you know, yeah. 60 to 120 or maybe even 150 pound fish, you know, so you can imagine the size of a hook that poor dog had through his nose. So. Wow. Yeah. It, and you brought them back, got, got them fixed, just like the people. Oh, they bring absolutely. them back to get fixed too. Oh, man. Grandma, grandpa. I remember uh, I, I showed up early. Uh, my wife and I had a little apartment, literally like right across the parking lot where I worked and uh, showed up early for work one day. And um, the ladies in the dispatch office were like, hey, Ken. Hey, great. Glad to see you here. Do you think you can uh, uh, get your beaver warmed up early and maybe go pick up? so-and-so out here at, uh, and, and you, you they kind of, everybody knows everybody by name. They might live four islands north or whatever, <laughs> but they know who they are. And, oh yeah, their daughter's over here in the hospital. She's going to have their first grandchild. So here I am, you know, 630 in the morning, warming up my bird, uh, waiting for kind of the light to poke around the, the top of the hill and go get grandma and grandpa and bring them back, you know, and checking the weather, looking at the winds, uh, windy app. That's something now that I, I'm in the process of talking that I probably should have put in the notes. There's an app you can get for your phone called Windy. Oh, it's so good, especially for a float plane pilot. It'll give you wind directions and velocities and kind of show you what to expect, especially if you're going across a long area. I use that a lot in Alaska. That's where I discovered I still use it now, uh, even as a regional pilot. So, you know, there are a lot of things to consider and going to get grandma and grandpa and they just talk the whole way back. Thank you so much for coming. We know you came outside of the schedule and blah, blah. you can't beat that. Not with a stick. I mean, that that's what life is about right there. And, uh, knowing that you were a part of get grandma and grandpa to see that grandbaby. And then I actually was in a restaurant eating probably a month or two after that. And I look over and I see them and there they are with their daughter and the little baby's all wrapped up and all swaddled and they're all having uh, having a meal together. And, uh, you know, they actually, they, they actually paid for part of our tab. I mean, it was just, you know, and, and what was so funny is I actually paid for part of their tab too. <laughs> and because I just <laughs> want to say congratulations, grandma and grandpa. And now I went over and talked to them, but, uh, uh, it, that's just, that's just the community up there, uh, in Alaska. I can't talk enough about the people and, and how genuine they are, how lovely they are. Uh, the natives up there are, you know, they're not really uptight, uh, like some things you get down here in the, in America, you know, uh, it's, it's one of the last vestiges of freedom, uh, that, that, right. uh, America is about up there. It's, it's really nice. Uh, I love it. So the job satisfaction is, is pegged pretty high as far as the Alaska, uh, float plane pilot. In, in my book. Yes. It's, it's, yeah. So for somebody who's listening there, this is one of the things you would consider is do this because you love it and not just about the money, that's for sure. And I know it's, it'd be a neat thing to put on your in your logbook, of course, uh, and a neat thing to put on your resume, but do it because you really enjoy it. I know everybody that's gone up there has said the same thing as far as uh, whether it's worth it for their career. 
uh, more so for the satisfaction than than the career in general. Because if you're not becoming a flow plane pilot, it's not the fastest way to get to the airlines. It's <laughs> one of the funnest ways to get to the airlines. It sure and I is. hear that I hear that quite often. Uh, but you've changed over, and uh, before you know, we're going to have to wrap up here shortly. But, but you now are uh, an airline pilot. So mm-hmm. why did you switch from being a CE plane pilot over to being somebody who flies something with jet engines and big wheels on it? Yeah, well, yeah, this is kind of my second dip into jet flying, you know, did charter. So I wanted, yeah, I, I'm still, and hopefully uh, we all are, we're still, I'm still growing as a pilot. I'm still growing as a person, uh, I'm growing professionally. So I wanted to see what the 121 world was about. Um, everything I'd ever done was 91 or 135. Um, the airlines were, you know, the ball was rolling you know, and had been rolling for a while. I was in, I was in a job where I was moving half the year versus the other half the year. Uh, the airlines were offering major bonuses and I thought, my goodness, you know, this is a really good time to, to go through a 121 program. Uh, not so much to pad my resume. That's not what I was thinking. I just thought, well, this is, this is an opportunity at at my age that am I going to look back in 10 years from now as uh, uh to quote my friend <laughs> my friend as a knuckle dragon float plane pilot and go shoulda coulda woulda you know i, I didn't want to live in the land of if ida and i think that's andy stanley if anybody's familiar with him i think he he came up with that concept or he, he's got a whole kind of presentation or speech you can look up andy stanley on, on uh, online somewhere and he talks about living in the land of if ida if I'd have just done this or if I'd have done that or if I'd have done whatever. So that, that was kind of the reason I thought, gosh, you know, I do like IFR flying. That was probably my favorite thing to teach. Uh, that was my favorite rating that I got outside of, I mean, CFI is a very stressful rating and that was very rewarding because you're able to pass it on to other people at that point. But boy, getting it is not, it's, it's tough. Uh, and, and it should be, but, uh, I wanted to get back in the IFR world. I wanted to uh, get into a 121 program, see what that structure was about, uh, and, and utilize that in, in my personal life and my personal skill set as, as a pilot. So that for me, that's what it was. It was about just professional development and, and the experience of it. Uh, do I want to get back to Alaska? I'd love to get back to Alaska. Uh, it just the way things have worked out. The timing wasn't right because flying in Alaska is seasonal. So every time, you know, for the last several years that that I took a new job, the timing just wasn't to where I could swing it back. You know, like right now, uh, we're not flying much. And uh, could I take a leave of absence? I, I probably could if I really worked uh, worked with uh, human resources at the airline that I'm with. Uh, I'm not sure that I'd want to, but it's a little it's too late now. To kind of, if there's an Alaskan job, then they've already got people lined up for it. I would could basically call them up, and say, "Hey, put me on reserve, if you will, and give me a call." But then that kind of jams everything up in the lower forty-eight, you know, for the for the job down here and how quickly you can get there. So um, that was my first true flying job was flying in Alaska. I backed into aviation as a career kind of strangely. Most people take this job later in their career. That was my first. Uh, uh, full-time job was flying up there. I left a, a, a job of 22 years uh, working for a major automotive manufacturer there in Kentucky to go fly in Alaska because it was my dream. Uh, and my wife was very supportive of that. So 
So now you're over in the 121 world. And, yeah, uh, and it, it, it's uh, it's not a hard transition in the sense of it's it's still flying. An airplane is an airplane. Um, you know, one of the guys that flies for your outfit that left where I work to come fly where you work, uh, he was the one that said, hey, Ken, just fly this thing like a 182 or 172. And uh, don't don't think about all those people behind you. Just fly it. And, you know, just that simple thing. Um, yeah, airplanes are airplanes and uh, I enjoy the flying. I, I really like the regional flying cause you know, in a normal day I can fly three, four legs a day. Uh, sometimes we just do one leg. Sometimes we just do two legs, but I enjoy the, the shorter flights, multiple flights, you know, uh, being able to use the restroom, <laughs> you know, uh, being able to stop and do a, do a turn and go to the restroom and, and not have to, uh, to, but I still have to think about hydration, you know, how do I stay hydrated, but, but manage the uh, restroom break. So, <laughs> so those are the little quirks of this job, you know. But as far as the, you know, the seaplane and, and this comparatively, they're two different worlds. Oh, and yeah, um, but if someone is, is listening, they, they're at that point of getting started and wanting to become a seaplane pilot, maybe we could hit on some of the key points before we close here. Okay. Uh, and I think uh, a big part of that, uh, like you said, one of them is, is have fun. But what, el- what else is there uh, if there are some takeaways that you, what would you suggest to somebody who's getting started as a seaplane pilot? You know, stay safe. Uh, Safety is a primary concern. Uh, don't think this is, it, it, it is different than, uh, than 121 or uh, flying IFR because everything we do in 121 or IFR flying is figured out before you even leave the ground. Uh, when you're flying floats, a lot of what you do is figured out as you're flying uh, because you're flying in an environment that, that could change very drastically. Uh just the terrain could change the water structure, the wind structure, and, and you're very low and, uh, to the ground, you're not, you know, five miles high or whatever. So think about, uh, really getting good at stick and rudder skills, uh, managing the energy of your airplane. That's the whole key. I mean, that's really flying. And I, I know that's, uh, sounds like an oversimplification, but it really, we don't fly airplanes. We manage energy. That's what we do as a pilot. Uh, so when you fly float planes, you really want to feel that you really want to feel that in your seat. You want to feel that, uh, you know, as far as the velocity or the lack thereof, um, you know, and I'm not talking about stalls. I'm talking about really feeling the airplane and, uh, getting, uh, cause a beaver, oh man, it flies with two fingers. I mean, you trim that thing out. It's a joy. Uh, so you can really just get the nuances of the aircraft there. It's, it's unlike anything, um, that, and I love Cessna products and Piper products, both. Uh, so that's the biggest thing I would, I would say as you're preparing for your career, learn the feel of the airplane, get, get some good wind, some time in the winds here on land. You know, if you're fearful of winds, uh, my private instructor always would say, uh, the wind is your friend, the wind. And I still say that to this day, you know, I'll fly with somebody and say, Oh gosh, we got some serious crosswinds coming in here at uh, Dulles and Dulles is always windy for the most part. Well, the wind is my friend, you know, and I'll say that in a very calm tone and hopefully it's like rubbing earlobes and saying, you know, (laughs) kind of brings some calmness to the cockpit because I remember that. And, And if you, if you're fearful of that, get out with an instructor, that's not so much. Uh, get out in a tailwheel uh, and 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 not push the limits, but explore 
what your personal minimums are. Always try to advance yourself. That's something that's going to help you, especially in float flying, putting one wheel down first. Uh, there, it's very similar. Sometimes we'd raise one float out to reduce that friction. It gets off the water a little better. So we call it rolling it out. So a lot of that stuff will transfer over. You just may not have the terminology for it. You may not have the experience on the water for it. But the more experience and the more diverse experience you can get flying in mountains, uh, if you have that opportunity, which I did growing up in Kentucky and living, you know, in eastern Kentucky, uh, flying, getting out on a boat. If you've got a power boat, get out there and maneuver that thing. Try to come into the dock. That's something that's really difficult for a lot of people to learn uh, in floats or how to dock the darn thing. You know, you got to come out of your seatbelt, get your door open, get out on the floats and, and uh, catch your airplane. Uh, so get out in a boat and try that. If you've got that, even if it's just a canoe or a kayak or a paddle boat at, at some rental place, do something on the water. Cause that's where you're going to be operating. Uh, learn your knots, learn, learn a couple of good knots, you know, how to tie up a, a boat, how to properly use a boat cleat without having some big, huge wad of mess, uh, and, and how to take care of your ropes, things like that. How to come up with a, with a little, like a go bag that you put under your seat. What are you going to need? You know, if, if something happens, what are you going to need? You know, if the aircraft uh, capsizes or something like that, how, how are you going to operate? Do you have something to, to take seat belts off? Uh, I know one of my chief pilot at the job uh, that I flew out in Isle Royal, he had a, his father gave him a glass, I don't know, a little hammer to break glass with. I thought that was kind of interesting. That way, if the door was jammed, he could, maybe break the glass, things like that. Uh, you know, be thoughtful, be considerate, prepare for the worst, but plan to be the best you can be and, and train to be the best you can be. So you never have to operate out of that little go bag. So all great advice. And, and by the way, if you're looking at some of the things that we were looking at, as far as uh, the links and what you were talking about, they'll be in the show notes. And uh, Ken, this has been awesome having you here, man. It's uh, been terrific yeah. talking about seaplane flying and, and flying in Alaska. And this is all some great, great advice. Um, but everything you've mentioned, we'll keep here in the show notes. And of course, uh, if you're looking to get a seaplane rating, there's a lot of scholarships out there. So check out the scholarship guide for that. Um, but uh, if we have questions, Questions, Ken, if you don't mind, we'll send them along to you. Oh, yeah, I would love it. Any, anything uh, that you'd like to ask, I'll, I'll be willing to, uh, to listen to. Yeah. Awesome, Ken. Well, thanks so much again for being here. And if you're listening right now and you're thinking about becoming a seaplane pilot, especially in Alaska or in the lower 48 or wherever in the world, uh, Italy, wherever it may be, uh, make sure that you do your research. And the easiest way to do that is after you hit stop, just go out and look at the show notes or start clicking and doing some searches on Google. Uh, but if you're looking at anything in life and you're wanting to move forward, don't forget, you know, this may seem daunting being a seaplane pilot or anything else that you do in the aviation world. But the easiest way to actually overcome that is to do something really small today to move forward in your career. It might be just a, a small step. It might be something where you're actually just buying a book online, like we talked about, researching a website, or talking to a friend, or going out and purchasing that, that first seaplane uh, actual lesson there. But what I want you to do is do something today, no matter what it is, to move forward in your career and your life. Well, we'll talk to you next episode of Safe Flying out there. You have been listening to Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream. 
and pursuing an exciting aviation career. This aviation podcast is produced by the Valeri Aviation Corporation. Although host or guests may receive compensation for products and services discussed in this podcast, compensation never influences our opinion. Before purchasing any product or service, you should always do your own research. Music by Billy Wheeler. All rights reserved.